Welcome to Headlines. This is Ari Wasserman sitting in for David Lichtenstein. Today we are going to be talking about an important and very relevant, unfortunately very relevant issue, that is abuse and abuse cover-ups in our community, something very relevant, which is going on in a number of places today. We are going to talk about a number of related issues, including if a uh, rabbi needs to consult with a woman, a woman needs to consult with a rabbi, she needs an Aitza, how should that be done? Should it be done in his office? Should it be done over Zoom? We'll be talking about Hilchas Yichud in that regard. We will talk about when there are allegations against a rabbi. At one point, do we start warning other women to keep a distance from that rabbi? For example, if there are recordings of him propositioning a woman, or if there's a history of allegations against him, would that rise to the level of our needing to warn other women to keep a distance? When do we go to the police if there are violations of law? And when handling allegations allegations of this nature? When do we keep it quiet and try to deal with this issue? And when do we publicize the potential dangers warning others away? Also, we'll discuss very interesting conversation. What's going on in the head of an abuser? Is he not concerned as he abuses this person and that person that he may get caught? Is he not concerned about that? And in addition, the conflict of violating the halachas, the halachas of yichud, the halachas of nigia, not touching somebody who's not your own wife, and uh, indeed doing those activities is violating the very Torah that he is teaching to his congregants. And also, when mentioning congregants, we will talk about those who cover up the abuses of the rabbi. They don't want to believe it. Maybe they believe it and they cover it up. Nonetheless, we will talk about what is their responsibility. So in a nutshell, this is a very broad discussion. We'll be talking about the halachas of Yichud, not being secluded in a man and a woman together. We'll talk about the hilchas edut, halachas of testimony, and when does does it rise to Raglaim Ladavar, that there is a basis or a strong basis that others should be warned. And we will also talk about Hilchas Mesir, the prohibition of turning a Jew over to the secular authorities. Does that apply in our situations? I am, in fact, very excited to speak with our guests and get their input on these very difficult issues. We will be talking initially with Rabbi Gershon Bess. Rabbi Bess is the rabbi of Congregation Kilas Yaakov in Los Angeles. He has been dealing with these issues for numerous years, for a number of decades now, and his experience in these areas really comes out in the interview that we have with him today. We are then going to speak with Rabbi Dr. David Fox. He is a Dion, a forensic and clinical psychologist, and he is the director of Crisis and Trauma Services for High Lifeline. He has a tremendous amount of experience in psychopathology and diagnosis. That means in simple English, the forensic evaluation of those who are abusers. So he has a lot of experience in screening abusers, and we will talk in depth about the process of screening, understanding personality types, and if there's a possibility of rehabilitation of abusers. Then we will go and speak with Mrs. Debbie Fox. Mrs. Debbie Fox is the founder and executive director of Magen Yeladim, that is the Child Safety Institute. She has a lot of experience dealing with abusers, and in particular, she ran a forum of Rabbanim. They were like a quasi-based in a very prominent Rabbanim in Los Angeles for many years 
years that dealt with claims of abuse against Rabbanim and others. So yes, she has a lot of experience dealing with abusers and also those who are abused. And then we will culminate the show with Rabbi Yonah Reese. He is the Av Basin of the CRC, the Chicago Rabbinical Council. Obviously in Chicago, he has again a tremendous amount of experience in these areas. In fact, Spitz sits on a special basin there dealing with allegations of abuse. There it happens to be via children, but he has dealt with all of the issues that we are going to be talking about today for a number of years. I do want to mention that in preparation for this topic, and this is a very important point, I did ask not one, but more, multiple piske halacha on the halachas of Lashon Hara. And indeed, this is a very sensitive issue, but there is a real to'eles in discussing the issues that we will be discussing today. In the past, approximately a year ago, we had a related show on Chaim Walder, or I had a show, David Lichtenstein had a show, which I'll talk about in a little bit. And after the show that, that I did, somebody got my phone number and he called up and he started shouting at me that this was all Lush and Hara. And I do want to say, I'm going to put it on the record, I asked a psak. I asked more than one psak of the posseg that I asked questions to. It's a world-renowned posseg, and he has cleared the discussions that we are going to have today, but there may be people who are stricter than he is, and that's okay. That's totally okay if you are one of them, and uh, you consult with your posseg, or your your own posseg, because you've learned in thorough detail the halachas of Hilchas Lashonar, and you feel that you are really holding in it. This show may not be for you, and that's okay. So this is, uh, we would call nowadays, a trigger warning, a trigger Lashonara warning, that if you you're one of the people who are incredibly sensitive and don't want to rely on the posik that I consulted with. That's totally okay. Please don't listen to the show because uh, it would not be good for people after that warning to be calling up and saying this was full of Lashonara because this has indeed been cleared. So an additional point, a really, really important and related point is that uh, there was recently, just a number of days ago, a news report by a reporter on an Israeli channel. It's actually the largest news channel in Israel, Channel 12, and he ran a segment on a Rav in London. There's a an allegation against him by a 21-year-old woman who said that she was sent to consult with the rabbi and he got up and, and locked the door and uh, he uh, touched her inappropriately and the like is discussed on, on that uh, on that news channel. Not going to go into detail and, and I will say I spoke with that reporter and I asked him what was the methodology they went through and the verification process they went through in order to verify the claims and uh, the facts, allegations in that news report. And he did walk me through some of the validations and verifications they did, including the recordings, the numerous recordings they have of this rabbi propositioning this woman and uh, looking at all the time codes of the calls from his home to her and the detail on all the verification processes that they do. And indeed, a channel of this nature, the largest news channel in Israel, does not take chances. They dot the I cross the T's before they would put anything on the air. So that is uh, very important. There's some people who are claiming that the recordings are fabrications. In fact, on that very channel, uh, the rabbi himself said they're Baba Misa's. Um, but having said that, I, I, I did speak with that reporter, and uh, it seems that they did a very good job in the verifications that they did. Now, again, this is a serious and concerning topic. A serious and concerning topic, and uh, David Lichtenstein and I, we both did shows uh, 
approximately a year ago during the unfortunate, the terrible Chaim Walder saga. This show covers some different aspects. For example, we'll be hearing from the perspective of the abuser. We'll be talking about various issues. There's a little overlap, and there's a lot new on this show. In addition, I do want to flag that this is unfortunately a timely topic, and I am hoping that what we discuss today will assist those communities currently dealing with this, these issues. Again, we're doing that. We're, do, we're putting on the show to help them, to help those who are making the accusations, the abuse. And in fact, it should be a help to those uh, that are denying the accusations against them, because if that is accurate, then they should stand up and clear their names. I think they should step down, meanwhile, during the investigatory process. But uh, indeed, they should embrace a process and have a psychological screening done and proper evaluations done and uh, stand up to the process and clear their names. I think that would be the proper thing to do. Now, I do want to say that this show, uh, again, is a major toeless for those communities dealing with these things. And these, unfortunately, these things pop up from time to time. But I also, also want to say that hopefully it will be helpful for the victims because they are the real carbonus, the real carbonus. And I do want to address them now with a short Torah from Parshas Vayetze because they're not going to be the focus of this show. We have discussed from the victim's perspective in the past. This is going to be more talking about dealing with allegations and from the abuser's perspective, what's going in, in on inside the head of the abuser. So Parshas Vayetze, we have uh, at the beginning of the Parsha the powerful dreams, powerful dream of Yaakov Avinu as he goes and he's running away from Asaph. His brother wants to kill him and he goes and he doesn't have a bed to sleep on, doesn't have a pillow. He has to use the stones for his pillow. And it says that as he fell asleep there, he had a dream. And in the dream, a very vivid dream, he sees a ladder and the ladder was nested on the ground and and the head of the top of that ladder reached all the way up to heaven. And it says and there were the angels of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. They were going up, they were going down. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu was at the way top. And it says when Yaakov Avinu woke up, very powerful language, he says as follows, here I slept. And I didn't know that. And he says this is a, a very, very holy place. So I saw a very interesting and I think a powerful vort on this by Rabbi Eliezer Leib. And he says if we can think about the situation that Yaakov Avinu is in. <laughs> Terrible. He has no money. He has no family. He has no friends. He has no bed. He has nothing. And he has his brother wanting to kill him. And what's he thinking? He says to himself, Where's my Savior going to come from? And now he comes to Haramoria and he has this dream. And he sees this ladder and the Malachim, the angels, are going up and down. And he says as follows that all of these nisyonos, all of these challenges are a very powerful message to Yaakov Avinu that you are down and out out right now. But you should know as you are on the floor represented by that, by that ladder that's on the ground, you have to know that that ladder reaches up to the heavens. And he says that all of these nisionos, you can. It's possible to get through. And it says, look at the malachim. The malachim, the angels of HaKadosh Baruch they're going up and going down. The message to him is, you can do it as well. Despite the challenges, the difficulties, the travails you are having, you can get up. You can get up from the floor. You can get up that ladder. And that's what life is about, going up and persevering. And unfortunately, sometimes going down as well. And it says in the post of Yaakov woke up from this dream and he says, 
as follows. What did he learn from that dream? Achein. Yesh Hashem b'makomaze. In fact, in this place, God is with me, and I didn't know what is b'makomaze in this place. He says, Rabbi Eliezer Leib, in this difficult situation, my current circumstances, that everything looks terrible, and I see no optimism and possibility of getting up. I'm down and out on the floor. You can get up. And I didn't know that even when somebody is down and out, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is with you. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is waiting at the top of that ladder. This is the house of God. Indeed, I can get up. I can make this work. And I think that's a very important lesson. As difficult as it is for those making the allegations, we learn from Yaakov Avinu, who was in a terrible circumstance. Indeed, you can get up. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is there for you. Make sure to work hard at getting up that ladder and doing the right thing. So I do want to play now a clip of the woman making the allegations against the rabbi in Golders Green because this will help frame our conversation today. I feel confident that what I'm doing is correct and that will bring a lot of awareness to people. He shouldn't have a position at all. He opened the door and he told me to come sit down and he locked the door. And I was surprised because there's halakhic thing that you can't do that because of Yichud. But I thought that he's a rabbi, so he knows what he's doing. He was sitting very close to me, so I moved back a bit and he came again. I will say that in the same newscast, that's a clip from the woman in the newscast that was uh, played by Channel 12. In that same newscast, the rabbi got on and he denied the allegation, saying all of those recordings were bubamices. That is indeed what he said, as we hear in the following clip played on that newscast. It's what they call in Yiddish, Bobamaisis. You know what Bobamaisis means? We can hear your voice in How do you know it's my voice? Because we have recordings. I can, I can copy voices of many people. <laughs> it's made up story. I don't send any emails. I didn't meet any girls in Israel. I totally denied. Denied. <laughs> I can tell you, I denied. We'll talk about that on this show. Who is to believe? We have a woman making allegations backed up by recordings. We have the rabbi denying it, a rabbi who has a history of allegations against him. I'm being very careful with the language I use. I am just calling them allegations against him by 30 women. So we're going to talk about who should be believed in this situation. Now, I will say from my perspective, when we have a 21-year-old woman who is coming out and making these allegations, to me, she is a very, very brave person. In fact, her Heroic, because the fallout when somebody makes allegations like this is unfortunately tremendous, and it is oftentimes not in her favor. But somebody who does this is doing it for the right purpose because she is concerned about others. And to me, somebody doing the right thing, even though it is to their detriment, is very inspiring. Now, on the other hand, there are people who sit on the side and people who even frustrate the purpose. And obviously, they are not doing the right thing. And now, I, I do want to play a clip from Rabbi Shraga Feivel Zimmerman, who is the Av Basin of the Federation of Synagogues in London. Again, he is the Av Basin of the Federation of Synagogues in London, a large umbrella organization of shuls in London, and he addresses the situation that is going on in London right now. Close to a decade ago, reading Rabbanim, led by Dayan Chanech Erentroy, may have a refuah Shimon Weingarten, wrote a letter about Chaim Halpern, who has a shul on Bridge Lane, that his, that his conduct is not befitting a Rav, and he presents a danger to B'nai Yisrael. 
many people, instead of accepting the words of such stellar Talmidei Chachamim and Anshei Emes, besmirch, disparaged, and harassed these people, these great Rabbanim. I believe you owe them all an apology. And you should apologize to them and ask Bechila from them before Shabbos, if possible. The reaction of the public, then, was twofold. There are those who just didn't believe it. It's very hard for people to believe such things. But you should know that Yibisol Salanta says that the first mitzvah in the Torah is Altihi Sechel. Don't be a fool. People don't make up such things. But what can you do? Someone can't believe it. To err is human. But there were other people who knew that it was true. But nevertheless, they insisted on covering it up for their ulterior motives. To these people I say, what gave you the right to be mafke, the blood and the soul of our sisters and our daughters? It's these people that are us at Litanes Adin. We should come to the time of Omalaha Oretz Deyas Hashem will have clarity of thought. Rabbi Zimmerman, I want to thank you so much for that, uh, that insight, uh, coming up, rising up the ladder and making those statements we've never met before, we've never even spoken. But I do want to dedicate a Mishnah to you. This is actually a Mishnah in Maseches Makos. It's the first Perak, Perak Aleph. Mishnah Zion. I'm not going to go through all the Mishnah. It's fairly complicated. It talks about various halachas of edus of testimony. And at the end, we have a Limud, something that Rabbi Akiva teaches us. Vim Kain Anash I'm going to read it in English as follows. We have a Pasuk that teaches us. We see that scripture punished someone who joined with sinners just as it punished the sinners themselves. So if you have sinners, somebody who's doing something like an abuser, and you have other people supporting that abuser or sitting on the side and not doing anything when they could do something, we could say. But they're joining together, frustrating the process, not participating, continuing to go to the congregation of that rub, whatever the case may be. That is someone who is going to be held responsible. They are nitbal ovre avera. They are someone who is assisting, facilitating ovre avera as if they are sinning themselves. In contrast to that, and then the Mishnah continues. In contrast to that, al achas kama v'kama yishalem sachar lenitbal osei mitzvah kosei mitzvah. If you have somebody who is assisting somebody do a mitzvah, it's as if they are doing the mitzvah themselves. So in the English, I'll say as follows: It says, how much more so if a kaddish baruch is going to punish somebody? who is joining together with a sinner, how much much, how much more so will God reward someone who joins people performing a mitzvah just as he rewards those actually performing the mitzvah? So if a Kaddish Baruch is going to punish someone who joins together with a sinner, certainly, but punishment is a lower level. There's so much more reward available. It's such, such a greater thing than punishment for sins. A Kaddish Baruch is going to reward those who do the right thing. And Rabbi Zimmerman, I want to apply that to you, being someone who is neat 
Tikvala Ose Mitzvah, the Ose Mitzvah, when somebody comes out and makes allegations, when there's a basis for those allegations, and somebody else comes and supports that, that is somebody who is Nitvala Ose Mitzvah, in contrast to those who may be frustrating the process and the investigation, or frustrating what should be happening, that is somebody who is a Nitvala Ovre Avera, and as the Mishnah tells us, it's a Limut from Apostle, says Rabbi Akiva, that is like Ove Avera, that is as if they are doing the Avera, the sin themselves. So that's very important. I, I do want to say, I hope things can be figured out. I, I hope that uh, no politics in London get in the way of doing what should be done, a proper full investigation and dealing with the situation of somebody who indeed recordings and a history. We need to clarify this, but meanwhile, obviously, no one should be going and associating, certainly women should not be associating with such an individual till there is clarity on this issue. Obviously, I've been very careful. These are allegations right now. We are not making claims that somebody is guilty right now, but as uh, some of the posting have came out, although not many have, not enough have, and say we have to be careful right now until there is clarity. And, and I will say, I will say that the people who are not getting involved and people who are just sitting on the side and frustrating the purpose, they will not, frustrating the situation, they will not be able to say, because oftentimes when there is abuse, abuse simply continues. Let's go to our riddle, and then we will go to our guest on this important topic. This week's riddle, Ajan Parshas Vayetze, we are at the way beginning of the Parsha. In fact, Parakhavches, Pasuk Aleph, and it says that Yaakov Avinu, ready to go to sleep, he took various stones, and he surrounded at least his head with them, wanted some protection, and the stones started fighting between themselves, each one saying, we want Yaakov Avinu to place his head upon me. Each one wanted to be his pillow, and it says that HaKadosh Baruch Hu came and created one stone from all of those stones, could have been twelve stones, representing the Shvatim, that symbolizes Klali shall be coming one, but be that as it may, HaKadosh Baruch Hu made them into one stone. And the question is as follows, how does that take care of the problem? Because each one, although they are now combined, should still be fighting, we want this tzaddik to put his head onto me. Although they are combined in one, but they are still separate, they were originally separate. And in fact, the answer is not that because we are one now, there's no nafkamin, it doesn't matter, they didn't care, because there are actually a number of examples in Allah that you have one item of Kedusha, you have one item that is a Heftza Shal Mitzvah, and there are different levels of Kedusha on that item. So the answer is not that now that they're combined, there's nothing to fight over. Accordingly, the question is, why did the fighting not continue? Why did making them one take care of the issue? If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, in America, our number is 732-806-8700. In England, it's 44, like that's the country code, 33011-70250. In Eretz Yisrael, it's 02-372-0304. And now, let's go to our guests.
Joining us now is Rabbi Gershon Bess. Rabbi Bess is the esteemed rabbi of Kilis Yaakov in Los Angeles. He is a major POSIC in the United States and has had the misfortune of having a lot of experience in today's topic. Rabbi Bess, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. I hope it will be helpful. It is always helpful speaking to you, Rabbi Bess. So, Rabbi Bess, let's start with the more simple questions of a Rav that is contacted by a woman and she wants some Eitzas. They are private issues. How how should he handle it? And we'll focus on an Yichud to start with. If it has to be in person, not in person, can it be as effective if it's not in person? And if it is in person, what's the advice that you would give a, a Rav? Is it leave the door fully open? Can the door be closed? but unlock? How should a, a Rav think about this, uh, this situation? It's a very good question. Uh, so that's the introduction the Shulchan gives us of Ma'id Ma'id. So surely, you know, so the more that a person tries to distance himself from any question, halachic question for sure is Meshubach. And especially in today's age and with everything that's happening all over, and for sure, it's very important for a person to try to be be using the kiyam as much as possible. So, of course, you know the best thing is. I mean, myself, I would not have somebody meet with a woman unless my wife was home, and also the door would be open. And um, whether halachically it's mutter if you close the door or you leave it unlocked, etc., is all you know. I, I, to myself, it's really like really theory, theoretical issues, not practical issues. Practical issues is a person has to be as careful as possible. You know, lest Khalila he himself be nichshul, and also to prevent that he shouldn't leave himself open, vulnerable to things that sometimes a person can get upset or whatever, and then start saying some nasty things. So it's it's self-protection as far as for himself, and it's also as far as the halach is concerned. And as far as the zahirus in being misrachik marayos, it's very important. So it's surely something that a person should be doing everything that he can to make it as clearly as, you know, open as possible. I think that's the mahalach a person should take. So leaving the door open for sure. If it has to be in person, then leaving the door open and the wife should be around. Right. Okay, very, that that makes a lot of sense. That indeed does. Um, Video cameras, having a video camera in an office, would that prevent the prohibition of Yichud? Would that be sufficient? And is there a difference between a video that is watched live? For example, if you would give uh, your wife or a friend access to be watching everything that's going on at the time, or if it's recorded, is that less of a of a shmira from the perspective of the hilchas yichud? So I think I think that's a very good shaila. Those, all those aspects of what you're asking is a very good shaila. I, I don't feel myself, you know, capable. This is you know for the gedolei Yisrael to make to determine whether it will be a heter on the yichud. There definitely as far as that it should be a heter, uh, but I. I think for one's own protection, it would be a good thing if a person did have a video. It would be very good for his own protection in case somebody would want to, you know, we might see on the person that that would help him. But to rely on that, again, I think practically, especially if it's, again, maybe halachically, 
that's permitted, but it's, it's, I don't think it's a smart idea. I think it's smart that a person should have to take the best precautions possible. And even if, you know, the video surely does create a mirsis, surely would do that. And there are, again, we tell them that it should be take off the Easter of Yichud. I don't think it's a way to go l'chavchila. In case you're asking a place that's a Shiloh be the evidence that there's no other Eitzah, you know, to rely on that, you know, it probably would be very smart to tell the person that you're speaking to, by the way, you should know that we are being videoed. And we are being, you know, and people could be watching actually right now in order to make, to do the best one can to make it as, as kosher as possible. And you obviously have to make sure that you're in the purview of the video camera. It can't be that you step yeah, that's, out. Yeah, that's obviously, you know, only going to work if it's going to really cover, you know, the entire room where you are. Right, you know, right, right. Step away, even though that's all Shashilas and Yuchasichah, they'll be afraid that they'll go to a Malkam Yufad. But if it's, you know, if it's just in a certain area and, you know, you just take one step over and you're not in view, obviously that's not going to be sufficient. Right. Okay. So let, let's move on to unfortunately something may or may not happen. And a woman makes a claim against the Rav that he was inappropriate with her. But what evidence is necessary in order for the claims to be believed? You need to aid him. At what point when she makes a claim against him, do you have to start warning people? Mm-hmm. So I think that the Paiskim all bring that Bezdin is ancient Shalem and Adin. I think it's uh, the Rajma clearly, and I think it's also in the Drushes Aran, I think, that says that if, if Bezdin would want to actually only bring punishment upon a person, if there's two Adim Cherim, and you know, then, you know, there would be a Churban in the world. Knows it could not be like that. Avada can't, it can't be like that, that that's actually the way the Bezdin is going to deal and say, oh, if I don't have two kosher witnesses, you know, may anoshim is kechad, is only like one, and erechad is neman, not neman, to the person, obviously that, you know, would not, doesn't work. We have to consider, you know, the halacha. But I think that, you know, in the practical world, I think the most important thing is that if there is an accusation brought I don't like to use the word that it should be brought first to a rab, to a rav, but I like to use the word better. It should be brought to somebody with seichel. In other words, somebody with seichel should hear what it is. And if they feel, you know, that person with seichel, maybe somebody who has experience with it, maybe somebody who's experienced therapist uh, in these issues, but it should be brought. The first thing I think it would, it's very wrong that if a person just feels that they have some complaint to run to the police. I think that's very dangerous and can be very detrimental. And Rabbi Yashiv himself writes, it can bring Churban Oilam, you know, just wildly if there's one accusation to run to the police. <laughs> one has to, has to be real COVID Reich, a serious person looking into it. And even if, if, if there's only one person, there's one complaint and by one person saying it, you know, that person is obligated to look into it. To see, you know, what, what can be done, uh, to try to verify more and more information. And even if, you know, if the person is, is, comes up to a brick wall and is, and doesn't have, uh, any way really to, to be mafara the truth. I think that it's obligated. The person is obligated to go and contact the person who's being accused and say, and tell the person, you know, accusations have been made against you. Can't just be, you know, I'll try to look into it. I don't see really any, 
any Raglaim Ladover. I don't see any really. It doesn't seem probable the way that she's saying the story doesn't, you know, has seems to be have holes in it or something. And even in such a case, I think it can't just be ignored, but it has to be followed up and actually confront the person. And that's the beginning of trying to instill some fear in the person. Right. That would right. be in the case when we when we don't feel that there's something to it. In the case where there are multiple or even two or three of the accusations coming. Definitely something has to be done. Whether the, the first thing is, I know when we were involved uh, with the rabbinic advisory board of the Jewish family service, we would, you know, call the person in and, and uh, tell him that these things have, have happened, have been accusations in terms of all that. And we feel that what needs to be done is, if you would like us to handle this in this manner, the first thing that has to be done is that we, you have to subject yourself to a serious evaluation, sexual evaluation, which was which was quite expensive, but that was done quite a number of times. And you know, is to be able to you know try to evaluate the situation and to see you know how to deal with it and have professionals involved to help guide us how to deal with it. Now, in, th- in those situations, when you called them the accused, did they often uh, deny the accusations against them? Or were there some that said, okay, they heaved and hawed a little bit? Or or they, did they fight the accusations? I guess there were, I remember there were, Baruch Hashem, the, ser- the serious cases were, they did subject themselves to the evaluation. But there were, like, I remember two cases in which they did try to deny, etc., and eventually, what the, one of the cases actually then went to the police uh, because we, we felt that the accusations was too serious and the person was denying it, etc. So therefore, it did go. I don't remember exactly how it was reported to the police. If it was reported by somebody who was a uh, who was obligated to make a report, I don't remember. But it it did go it did go that route. And there was a trial against the person. Trial, even okay. So, so, you, so when, when sitting on on a, on a panel like that or a basing like that, you're going to look at all the facts and circumstances, and I assume you're going to hear the accusations of one or many women. And w- would you look at prior history, for example, if there have been claims ten years ago, twenty years ago against this person, or if there are voice recordings that sound like this individual or other other evidence and history? Well, of course, yeah, I think that's I think that's bullshit. Voice recordings for sure, you know. Uh, are create definitely create a you know a serious issue here that's for sure and of course you know again Seichel says if there's been some rumors about it in the past and obviously that makes the case much more serious that has to be followed through and right. has, you have to come to a bureau and, and 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 decide what has to be done at what point do you start warning women to stay away from an individual or kids to stay away from from such a person well, I think, you know, when, when there was some, we had some questions about somebody that was questionable, uh, you know, hanging around in a shul or something like that. So we did notify the Rav about it and then told the Rav that he has to, you know, be speaking to the people in his, in his shul about the importance of not allowing children to be going upstairs during davening alone there. And there may be other people. So it, it, it definitely, it's it's definitely the obligation to create an awareness whenever there's any question, whenever there's any suspicion. Now, that's, I assume, during the investigatory phase. But once there are findings, you'd probably want to throw that yeah. person out of the shul. Yeah, well, then 
Yeah, that's for sure. But it, it's not enough just to throw him out. You have to follow him. You have to follow him. In other words, in one case where there was the person, you know, admitted and this, he went for evaluation and and uh, and went to therapy. And when we felt that the therapists said that they feel that this person really is is not somebody who's not controllable and not able to control himself, but rabbi who is who is they feel that he is a person who's safe. We still at that point, uh, when the person did leave town, did notify the Rav of the place that he's going to and let him know that that even though, you know, he has been cleared that, that the therapists, we're talking about sexual therapists, not just uh, just as some social worker, but some, you know, professionals felt that this person is really not a danger to society and this, that. But you as the Rav of where he is now, should be aware that there's a history and you know, no action should be done, but you have to be aware. If right. you're aware, then obviously you know, your antenna is up. Right. So, so let, let's get to the Messira question, turning the individual over to the secular authority. So what, what's it when there's a situation that there was non-consensual something between, let's say it's a rabbi, a male and, and a female, or she is underage, uh, or children are involved that are underage, or it's illegal for a clergy to have a relationship with someone he's counseling or otherwise. At, at what point do we go to the police? Is there a Messiah problem? I actually have in front of me a statement from a, a certain um, organization in, in, a, in a country, not the United States of America, and, and they came out with a statement that said that uh, there have been allegations against a certain Rav, and they say the public is advised, therefore, that to take, you have to be careful, you are on warning, to take necessary precautions and to take these allegations seriously. And then they go on to say that this uh, organization, it's a Haredi organization, uh, is unequivocal. It's not in Israel either. It's not in the United States. So it's in another large Jewish community outside of the United States and outside of Israel. They go on and say the rabbinate is unequivocal in their opinion that all disclosures of abuse should be be referred to the relevant authorities, institutions, and the like. So at what point do we say that there's enough information, there's been a violated law that there's not a, a Messira issue? I'm not, I'm not sure you had a clear about the question. I mean, the main, the, the main, you know, if so, just if I know somebody, you know, violated the law, I wouldn't think that there's a mitzvah to go and, you know, tell the authorities, this guy did some avera and therefore you should arrest him. I mean, I think our, our responsibility is to protect the tzibur, that there should not chalila be any sakona for the tzibur. So that's really the determining factor. The determining factor is if there's a fear that there's, that this person is a predator is this is a person who is grooming a person who's doing anything like that that could be a threat to the tzibur. That has to be stopped. Now, if if there's just a little, you know, there's we don't consider there's like the term regleimudaba. You know, is this some suspicion? I don't know that. And we have to do what we can. I don't think that always we're able to just go to the police. But, you know, again, at the, at the um, when the rabbinic board was working, so. Mrs. Fox, who was the head of it, uh, you know, had a very good relationship with the Jewish family, with the authorities, you know, that we do the investigation in this. And we would confer with them about when legally is the obligation to report, not an obligation to report. And also they would be very happy if we were dealing with it and 
and investigating the situation. As they, they're very happy if it's if it's done, as long as it's responsibly done. So depending again, finding out as much as you can and then making sure that if there's a thought that there's a threat, you must protect the people. I mean, if, you know, any one person that, that is abused can destroy a life forever. I mean, it's it's Ritzicha. Right, right. So at what point, if the person is denying it, the, the person who's accused, he's denying it, do you go public and put it on the internet and uh, inform people that this person is a real public menace, he's a danger, and you have to stay away from him? Or what, when do we keep it quiet? Because there have been times that uh, Bate Dean have kept things quiet and uh, have the person leave town, even though that's a risk for where the person may arrive at. And other times things indeed do go public and they want to go public because they want to warn people. So ha- is that based on how risky that individual is? I think so. I think it does. I mean, if a person is is not re- ready to deal with it, and to accept that there's so much accusations, and therefore it's not something you can just brush off. You can't just just deny, deny, deny. It doesn't work. You've got to deal with it. Either you have to sub- submit yourself to the therapy, and and this, then then we can deal with it and work with you. But if not, then we would have to notify people. Definitely have to notify anybody who be anybody in those shuls and all that. You'd have to notify. This is a person that one has to be careful. Right. So let's change vein a little bit and not talk about the person who's accused. But sometimes there are people in the chatzar of the accused that actively cover up the abuse. And there have been extreme examples of this, of when a woman or women make claims or kids, they'll pay them off or pressure them to keep quiet about their true accusations. And and the question is, the people who indeed are, are covering up and they should know better than that. Uh, what Avera are they committing? They're not the accuser themselves, but they're kind of uh, facilitating the continued abuse by that individual. Unfortunately, I, I, I know that that happened um, recently in Eretz Yisrael, that a, a known abuser for many, many years and, and various people were covering up and it happens elsewhere as well. Um, so what, what's, what's the crime? The Avera of somebody who's covering up. <laughs> they're they're an accomplice to murder if they if they cover up like that. And Mamish an accomplice to murder. It's it's, it's it's terrible. I don't I don't know the words what to say. It's Mamish You have to protect people and uh, covering up and and allowing the person to continue to do something abusive which destroys lives is a terrible thing. Right, right. Um, so I guess uh, the answer is like Samuel Damriacha. How can you? How can yeah, you know, people that are getting killed by this person? That's, that's how can you stand by? So a, even standing by is a problem. Surely to cover yeah. up is is, is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> there's just there's no words. So that that would apply if uh, a secretary knows that her boss, the principal of a school, is abusing people, abusing girls in the seminary, or that secretary can't just sit by and not, and not do anything. She definitely has to notify. Somebody with seichel, a rav, a therapist, somebody has to notify things are happening. That's terrible. So if we have this situation that lemechash mibai, right? You have to be concerned. And uh, there are serious accusation, uh, accusations against somebody. Should that person 
should his books be removed or his shiurim be removed from websites um, because either it's very close to likely or once a decision has been made based in his makeup sock that he is abuser and, and a dangerous individual. Would it be okay to continue learning from that individual or or should we kind of expunge that that individual's religious mark that he has on the, on the Tibor? That's also a very good question. And I, I think there are a number of you know, different aspects to it. And it's, it's really, it is really a Shiloh for Gedalim to answer because there's a lot of different points. Like, like in one point, unfortunately, in the recent history, if, if people would not remove, since he was so well known, the person, if people would not remove it and leave it around. So ignoring the Hashkafa Shiloh of learning from such a person or sharing any idea from such a person, whether like Rebeir and Nachir, ignoring that, but just the mere fact that people are allowing that uh, person's name to be still publicized is causing a lot of pain to to victims. So before you even get to the Ashkofa Shaila of, of learning from such a person, in general, of course, generally we say, of course, you don't learn from a person that you know. There's a Balavera, there's a, that's a Chil Hashem. So to learn from such a person, that's not in Dermil Harav, it's a little far from that in this kind of a situation. But there's the, besides the Ashkofa Shaila, which I think, of course, you know, it's, it's, it's just, can't, you can't be Machabed Rashayim. And in a way, by keeping their things around and using them, it's in a way being mechabed in a way. It's condoning something somewhat. It's like uh, uh, saying it's not so terrible what has happened. And that's when, besides the fact that you have to consider a lot of the peripheral damage that happens to the, you know, to people who are uh, victims, you know, what, what they're going through with any popularity for that person. Right. So if, if you have a Rav who gives, uh, you know, there are accusations against him, it could be women or children or whatever the case may be, and he has Shirim on big websites about Taras Mishpach and Hilchas Yichud or something like that. Well, that's, for sure. that's a little bit, you know, too too hypocritical. But even if he's saying it, Dafyomi, I think, you know, that, the question did come up a number of years ago. Somebody who had, you know, a lot of Shirim with a lot of learning, and I did get a number of requests at the time about whether, say that, you know, maybe, maybe if it's the only way that you could ever do any limit of terror, that you could talk about it. But if there's, if there's any way, you know, so to be machabed or to make believe that, that the person is not a balavera, it does not seem that it's in the terror's ashkaf of Dermal Kharab. Right. Right. And, and, and one, one final question, Rabbi Bess, for you. You know, we've seen, in the past, when things have come out, there have been in, in about a year ago with 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 Chaim Walder and Meshi Zahav. When when news came out, they actually committed suicide, attempted suicide, committed suicide. Is that something to consider when if there's we're in the situation of the We're already putting out proclamations: stay away from this individual. Individual. There are real accusations. There's history. The recording. Whatever the case may be, there's evidence, and we're going through a process. But there's real evidence. Is that a reason if you feel women do have to be warned, as we've talked about? Is that something to consider that this person may commit suicide because of uh, coming public? Or is that uh, is it more important to, to protect the public? I think that if it's a question of protecting the public, you have to protect the public. And I think I think I think even Rishlam Zalman has if somebody s- says to the person that if, you know, if you're going to do this and all that, I'll kill myself. 
He says, that's not my responsibility. That's up to you. You want to kill yourself? Kill yourself. The fact that, that even he, he says outright, so surely in a case where somebody else is going to get damaged, sure, you know, it's, it's not my problem, but what, how he's going to react. I don't believe if there's, if there's a danger. If there's no danger, that's a different story. But if there's any what of a danger to somebody else, then what he wants to do, that's his business. The tzibur is more important. Yeah, for sure. Right. Rabbi Bess, I want to thank you so much for joining us. The the decades of experience in these unfortunate issues are, are really shining forth. And uh, we really appreciate your wisdom and uh, insights today. Thank you so much. Be well. Thank you, Ravari. Joining us now is Rabbi Dr. David Fox. Rabbi Fox is a Dayan. He's a forensic and clinical psychologist. He's also the director of crisis and trauma services for High Lifeline. He is the rare individual who can give a shear in an esoteric area of halacha, a class in numerous areas in psychology, and can also combine the two back to back without preparation. He's also the Rav of the Hashkama Minion at the Young Israel of Hancock Park. He has been a graduate and medical school professor since 1980, and one of his areas of expertise has been psychopathology and diagnosis, simply meant that includes forensic evaluation of those who abuse, which is indeed our topic today. Rabbi Dr. Fox, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Rabbi Wasserman. It's an honor, and it's also nice to interact with you again. Thank you so much. Well, let, let's start with the basics. If there is an accusation against somebody who is an abuser, unclear, is he or is he not, but he agrees to come to an evaluation. How do you go about evaluating if somebody is an abuser, if they're not necessarily being very open about their uh, inclinations and their prior acts? It's an important question. And firstly, an evaluation needs to be performed by someone who is eminently qualified to do it. This is not a routine interview. And generally, we will obtain a careful history. We will review any records that or documentation that might come from law enforcement or other sources. Uh, we will have an intensive interview to determine the person's mental status, which will look at his thought process, his fantasies, the content of his imagination, the way he forms ideas, the way he reasons his ability to render a judgment and make decisions. Um, we will also look uh, into his range of emotions. Is he detached? Is he aloof? Is he impulsive? Um, and Rather than relying on history and interview alone, we will also routinely administer a number of psychological uh, assessment instruments and sometimes tests. Uh, there's a difference between an assessment instrument and a test, but I won't go into that now. Uh, but we will be looking uh, at personality structure. Uh, we'll also be probing in subtle ways the degree of candor and uh, veracity that he has versus whether a person is possibly very skilled at camouflaging his motives um, or suppressing the things that he struggles with. Uh, so a, a skilled examiner will be able to give us, uh, hopefully, an accurate profile um, and uh, a an ethical practitioner understands that his or her job is not to render a judgment, it's not to decide guilt or non-guilt, but rather to describe the mind and the dynamics of this individual. Uh, but 
the legal decision or the judicial decision, of course, is left up to the court system or, as the case may be, to the Bate Din. Right. So, so you mentioned thought process and evaluating the mind. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm very curious as to what the thought processes are of an abuser. You know, for example, what's going on inside of his head? Are abusers worried about getting caught if uh, somebody we've had... Uh, abusers over the years that have abused numerous people. And you'd think that they would have a real pacha, a real fear of somebody going public. And if there is that fear, why doesn't it keep them from still abusing and going forward? So what's going on in the mind there? Okay, so first, we have to recognize that those who are abusers, those who molest, those who perpetrate, uh, those who are predatory, definitely fall into a few different, fairly discrete categories. There's not one type of person or one type of mindset. So let's quickly run through some of the things that we would want to know. Um, There are people, let's just use an expression, who commit crimes of passion, which means they're opportunistic. The situation arose, they were impulsive, they were hot-blooded, and maybe we might loosely think of that as being Yetzirah, which, of course, opens up the whole philosophical question, is this a mental disorder, or is this hate? And we've had credible theorists in behavioral science who actually think about this maybe as a moral flaw rather than a psychopathology. Um, But we're not going to talk right now with the person who, in the heat of the moment, makes an impulsive decision. That would be Yetzirah. That would be Yetzirah. Well, it might be. It might be. And again, um, I'm making an, an analog to Yetzirah, but I don't want anyone listening to our program to think that uh, Rabbi Dr. Fox says this is just a matter of Yetzirah. There are mental disorders. There are personality disorders. There are conditions more likely than not, which are fueling the acting out of molestation and abuse. And, and really, that's the type situation we're going to, is going to be brought to our attention forensically or to a base dinner to a court. So let's understand there are different types of people. So for example, you have people who have a character pathology, which means that in their development, there are elements of personality which remain immature, did not fully ripen in them. So for example, we definitely have people who lack much conscience. Some of my colleagues uh, some years ago were looking at the Bensora Umora as a paradigm to understand this. I'm not going to go there, although you and I years ago might have actually learned some of those Gamora and Sanhedrin together. But, um, but, but let's look at conscience. So if we can conceptualize conscience, not so much as Yates or Tov necessarily, but let's say conscience is that internalized system of what's right and what's wrong. And it's something that in the course of healthy development that a child is going to gradually pick up through osmosis by hearing the rules of their parents or authorities or teachers that uh, being reinforced and encouraged when they act with decency and civility, being punished or disciplined when they violate others' rights, when they're dishonest. So, so this is what builds a conscience in the human being. And we do have people who act out in predatory ways who appear not to have much conscience. Now, why that's important is that they don't feel remorse after the fact of violating someone else's rights or committing a crime or abusing someone. They don't 
feel remorse, but equally important, they don't anticipate consequences with any anxiety, which means that their conscience is not working preemptively in them to give them pause. Should I do this or should I not do this? Actually, one of the uh, convicted felons in the Watergate uh, incident uh, many, many years ago, one of the masterminds, I've read the transcript, and in his appeal, he said to the judge, Your Honor, I am a psychopath. I don't have a conscience. I have to steal. I need to be dishonest. And he actually was given a somewhat reduced sentence because he somehow was able to convince the judge that Nebuch, he was a psychopath. He really didn't have much braira in what he was doing. But but you have that type of pathology among some of the predators that they don't have self-restraint. They don't anticipate consequences. They feel um, immune to the law because right and wrong doesn't really concern them. Unfortunately, let, me, let me just make sure I'm getting the categories right. Crime of passion, that somebody who's opportunistic and impulsive. Next, yes. you said that, that there are mental disorders. Lack of conscious, I assume, falls into the category of, of a mental disorder. Well, I'm actually going to call that a personality disorder, which means that they have not fully developed. They may be extremely intelligent. They may be very right, uh, bright. Um, they may have uh, fine social skills, um, but in the recesses of their mind, they can scheme, they can plot, they can do wrong without any concern before the fact or after the fact that they might be getting into trouble. It just doesn't occur to them. After the fact is, is, is shocking to me. After the fact, because if you say the law is XYZ and you violated it, 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 it should be self-explanatory. What you're expecting of people is that they give a lot of credence to somebody else's rules. And that's often how they view it, that those are someone else's rules, but I don't necessarily endorse those rules. Um, um, I, I had a gentleman I had to evaluate years ago. He actually wrote this up in an article. He uh, was a criminal and he decided he was going to reform himself because his girlfriend, who was a woman about 40 years older than him, uh, insisted that he clean up his act. And so um, he enrolled in college. And I asked him how he was able to enroll in college and that he had, he was wanted for numerous crimes. So he said, without blinking, he said he murdered someone, buried them, stole their ID changed his name, and he got into college using another person's ID and had no concern at all about having committed a crime. He felt that it was in the pursuit of him being able to get a college degree. So he had no no remorse. That, 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 that's pretty shocking, that story. Let, let, me, let me ask a specific question then along the same lines. If you have a rav, a rabbi, and he teaches these halachas about the Isser of Yichud, the Isser of Nagia, Losikravulagalos Erva, the Yetzar Hara, Rav Amram Hatzadik in the Gemara, and even Rav Amram Hasid in the Gemara. Amram Hasida. Amram Hasida. Hasida, thank you. And he, and, he, and he teaches these things, so he knows them and he endorses them, and he tells people they are critical, and Yichud is, according to many Poskim, and Isser Doraisa, and it's an Isser Be'etzem, and, and and he teaches that to the public and then violates it. So that seems to be somebody who's endorsing the halachas and the laws and dictates and ordinances that we adhere to, but then himself violates it. So is that somebody who's just not getting? Where, where's the disconnect there? So 
there's some evidence that there actually may be something going on neurologically in that person. Not that he has a tumor or he has an illness, but just the way his brain is working, that there really is somewhat of a disconnect between his intellectual awareness and his ability to integrate psychologically the things that he learns. So there can be a very superficiality that uh, this person may may be able to espouse all the lumdas and explaining a halacha or explaining even the shorish behind a halacha, but nothing really puts a dent in him because he does not have a lot of insight. He doesn't integrate. He doesn't learn from experience. I'll give you two examples of that. Um, Many years ago, I had to uh, evaluate. uh, This was a rabbi, and um, what he had been doing was that the young single men who came to him uh, for hashba, many of them, he used his power and his charisma to insist insist that they engage in uh, inappropriate behavior to to pleasure him. And uh, in a sort of a non-judgmental way in my evaluation, I asked him um, as a learned rabbi, how did he rationalize himself given his awareness of the halacha, psukim uh, in chumash, other sources? So he said with a straight face that everything he does is l'shem shemayim, and he made a decision that he will not learn those sugyas or inyanim that explain the things he can't do or why they're usser, because that way he can be a shogeg instead of amazed. And that sounds like amazed. <laughs> yes, it sounds that way to you and to I. But this was this disconnect inside of him that he was doing this literally with great kavana. I will decidedly not learn those things that might make this usser for me, which leads to my second point. Um, I've actually uh, published something on this. It just came out in dialogue. But but I've often thought that that's possibly the Kavana Chazal had in the Alchets. When one of our Alchets, and this is the one that all the commentaries and the English translations of the Machsar, they all argue what this means exactly. And I think I have a shot what it means. This is Alchet Shechatanu Beyodim Uvalo Yodim, which means Means we know it's wrong, but we put ourselves in a mind frame in that moment of temptation that we're not going to pay attention to what we know. We are yodim below yodim. We're telling ourselves, I, I'm not going to know about this. That's and then, of nice course, point. that's I, a nice I, point. That, that's my kavano when I say al hates. <laughs> Because nice I think we're all nichshal in that sometimes we justify things. But of course, the difference between a healthy person and a predator is that we're going to say the al hate, meaning we're going to recognize that this was where we were nichshal, that we didn't allow ourselves to make the natural connection of this is wrong, I can't do it. And we feel guilty after the fact. Um, the sort of psychopathic a predator, he doesn't have the restraint beforehand, and he generally will not have remorse after to the fact either. So right, that so, is one type of personality. So when, yeah. when Chazal talks about the Yetzirah, that it starts slow and it increases over time, and when it compares the Yetzirah to Koryakavish, like it's a spider web initially, it's easy to break through, and then it's a it's a big rope that you can't get out of. And, and the, the, the the Chinuch has on La Sikrubulagala Serva whole discussion. He brings a number of these Chazals and he talks about how it uh, it fakes us out and starts slow and goes quickly based on the Chazals. That seems to be your your first category of crimes of passion, maybe, or passion increases over time. Well, maybe, maybe not. The Yitzhahara works slowly. And then if something happens, and it could be a Rav that is giving. Uh, 
probably in, improperly, but it's Shalom Bayis, coaching to a woman over time, and uh, you have a meeting of the minds or a kirva over time, and that that, that happens, as opposed to when you have uh, an individual that has, I guess it's more than a Yetzirah on steroids, that anything that walks into the office, or it's not just like over years, there's a there's a kirva, but it's for n- numerous women. That doesn't seem to be what Chazal was were discussing in those examples or those those illustrations uh, of uh, Yetzirah. Yeah, so this is an important point. So I, I think we want to look at a few more categories that might fit into this Chazal. So let's take people, um, sometimes some professionals, they'll refer to this as an addiction, um, sometimes refer to it as a compulsion. But you have people for whom there's definitely a conscience, they know it's wrong, they have a lot of self-incrimination after the fact, they are racked with guilt when they are nichshal or they act out, and then they start making excessive kabbalas on themselves. They can be religious kabbalas or psychotherapeutic uh, resolutions, and they they will punish themselves for whatever it was they've done. But what seems to happen is that that also, just to borrow the term, that's also atatzayetzer, which means the trying to go to an ascetic extreme and to completely uh, numb out normal body sensations, normal emotions, uh, trying to say, you know, that I will never do this thing again. I'm going to be marachic myself, minakior, minadoma, okay. But what happens is all that sort of emotional deprivation they give themselves because they're angry at themselves, it gets to a certain point where the mind can't handle all the deprivation, and the mind begins to thirst for some gratification, at which point suddenly what we'll call the Yatzer, what we're going to call that compulsive fueling is going to uh, pervade consciousness. And that's one track mind. That's all they can do. They're going to look for a target, for a victim, for a partner. And then they're going to escalate and the cat is out of the bag. And they're going to do this and do this and do this. And until they halt, and they feel horrible. And then they again go into that cycle of being marachic to the extreme, which in turn starves them emotionally and physiologically. And then they're going to be once again. Correct. And, and you find those people who are compulsive offenders and they do feel bad after the fact and they do feel bad before the fact. But the way they're going about managing themselves is actually leading to the buildup, the crescendo once again, and they're going to act out. And these people, uh, they need a lot of structured treatment, include, including group treatment group therapy. Now, that's, there's another that's category. Three, that's three so far. So that's the, yeah. the crimes of passion. Yeah. That could be the Aitzahara. We have the personality disorder, somebody who has a lack of conscience, both up front and after the fact. And then mm-hmm. we have the addictive or compulsive personality. They know they're doing something wrong, um, but they can't control that at a certain point. And we have the cycles going on. Yes. And there's okay. that cycle. Correct. Okay. Now, let's take another type 
And we see a lot of this too. And, and I'm going to cautiously borrow two analogs, uh, one from the Torah itself and, and one from a Gomorrah and Gittin. And again, I'm, I'm saying this cautiously, not saying this is the Pshat, either in the Psukim or in the Gomorrah, but we can learn something by looking at these two constructs. And, and let's take the Esha Shafas Toar soldier. Now, in psychological terms, what we might say, just using that for comparison, not saying this is shot in the Pusik. But what's going on there is that this person in the passion of victory, where his gavura, his might as a warrior has led to victory and to success. There for some people and not all people, there is a fusing of the two parts, let's say, of their manhood. Women can be perpetrators also, but I'm talking right now about men. Namely, if we look, Kodesh Baruch Hu tells Adam Rishon, go out and conquer the world, go out and conquer your wife. So, so we, we've got, for the moment, for discussion's sake, we've got at least two drives going on inside of us. And one is the masculine as the aggressor, the conqueror. And the other one is the man whose masculinity is demonstrated through his, let's say, his loving or his romantic efforts. Let's just say that. What we see, or what we might be able to see in the Yeshish of Astor predicament is that this person whose aggressive part has peaked, it may become very fused with that other drive inside of him. Now, you see this with Tito Sarashala Havdil also, um, that what does he do when he conquers Yerushalayim? It's not enough that he goes and he slashes the parochas, but the Gomorrah explains the women that he brought in. And that was, again, the crescendo. That was like the apocalyptic moment for him where his gavura, his manhood, was now going to be manifest in the other way that men can exercise their manhood. So so what is that about? In healthy development, especially in a wholesome Torah community, we help our young men who transition from being little boys into big boys into young men. We help them take a look at different elements of self. Um, now, we can say it's all Yetzirah, so when you get angry, it's Yetzirah, when you get aroused, that's Yetzirah, or we can recognize that these are different systems inside of the brain and the body, and we hopefully socialize this young man, not only through the study of Torah, but also through example and wholesome role models and introducing appropriate harchakas, and, and who do they socialize with, and who are they not going to be familiar with into personally, but this person is eventually going to learn to manage both his aggression and that other part of his psychophysiology. There are some people who fuse them and confuse them, which means that for them, the way they demonstrate that they are a man, it can either be by bullying or being tough, or it can be by proving to themselves that they are capable of functioning in this manner. And that person may have multiple targets. They may have multiple 
romantic partners, they may just have this sort of drive inside of them, either to prove to the world, to prove to themselves that they are successful and victorious in their manhood. Unfortunately, rather than doing that in socialized ways, they end up using their aggression in ways which are harmful to people. And that may include being harmful in ways which they intend to show their erotic proficiency. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking as much as I can on Lush and Nikia, but, but there are people, their their development is a little stunted, not that they didn't develop a conscience, but their sense of what it means to be a man or how they demonstrate their manhood or how they have a need to prove to themselves that they are big boys and not little boys um, will, will be at the expense of others. And now this could be linked to a low self-esteem, I assume. I'll tell you, it's another discussion. I, I don't endorse the whole concept of self-esteem. It's never been validated scientifically. It was a term developed in the late 60s and 70s to describe something, but I have never had a patient or anyone else come to me saying, I need some help on my self-esteem. Um, okay, I think so that there is I'd love whole- to have a show on that. I love that we should have a whole topic on that. Okay. Yeah, we'll get- I, I think it's one of these... Um, overused ideas, which is not really particularly helpful to anybody. Um, but, but let's say there are people who have insecurities, or let's say there are people who don't believe themselves to be competent in certain ways, right. and they compensate by proving to themselves that I'm good at something, um, and I can have people afraid of me or I can overpower people. Okay, right. so I think that's another category. Um, you have other questions, or do you yeah, want me I, to? I definitely do. I, I, it seems that these, we have four categories right now. A, a nafkamina, there are many nafkaminas, but it could be a nafkamina is the ability to go through a process of recovery. Um, and it seems that some of them are more manageable than others. So if we're talking about abuser, I guess the first step is you make an analysis on a high level. Obviously, we're simplifying it as to what category you're in. What, what What's the challenge that this person has? And then we have to have a tailored process to get this person back to some sort of normalcy so that, that an individual hopefully can get back into normal society. So the question is, What's the success rate? What's the process? I know this is probably a whole hour discussion. I know we have to do it fairly quickly. And and at the end of that, how can you ever be sure that this person is ready to go back and interact in a healthy way with the women or the children that may have pr- previously been uh, abused by him or her? Yeah. So um, let me... Uh introduced a a partial disclaimer that by choice, I uh, generally don't get involved in treatment of predators. Um, There are other people who specialize in that. And that there are select occasions where I might treat someone who um, is victimizing other people. But generally, that's not an area in my practice that I specialize in or want to specialize in. But with that caveat, um, there are some perpetrators who pretty much cannot be helped. Um, The ones who are more psychopathic, which means that they don't care about anybody else. And uh, guilt is not something that they experience. Um, There's really not much therapeutic that can be done. We might sometimes see some results by putting them in a group of sex offenders. And they sort of form a group conscience for one another, 
Um, but, but therapy has in general not been successful over the 150 years we've been trying it in dealing with people who lack a conscience. Um, and, and if that's what's going on, this is why up until about the 1960s, um, state hospitals um, had a ward for what they called uh, psychopathia sexualis, which means for people who were sex offenders, they were considered they were sort of next door in the state hospitals uh, to those persons who were considered criminally insane. So you had in the next ward those who were considered um, sociopathic or psychopathic. It's the same word. It's the same meaning. But the um, uh, psychopathia sexualis, they were just considered beyond treatment and they used to hospitalize them. Um, so, so those people we really don't have success with. Now, I'm not going to talk about treatment, but I'm going to talk about what's more important, and that is rehabilitation and reintegration into the community. My opinion, rabbinically and scientifically, is that the community really cannot afford to decide that if someone is a convicted offender, that it's okay eventually to allow them access to children or access to vulnerable people. Um, it is true that Chazal do give remedial tasks for people who are nichshal in a variety of different things. And then we do some empirical observing of what they're like if they relocate to another community. So Chazal sort of give us in the Rambam codifies and things we can do, the person who sells tarfas, uh, the person who charges ribas, the things, you know, there there are remedial things. But but I think if a person is in a position of authority and has abused it by taking advantage of others, in my rabbinic and halachic and my scientific opinion, I don't think they can go back to a position of authority. It, one who has uh, dramatically aborted the image of role model by being overtly hypocritical with or without confessing it and having remorse. Um, but it's it's not fair to the tzibor to expect them to put this person back in a position of authority. There's a truven semachetic about a shochet who was found not to really have a kabbalah in being a shochet, and they ousted him from his community. And the question was, when he showed back years later and he had a smicha, could they really reinstate him? There's a tshuva in Be'er Mordechai. Uh, he looks actually, what happens to the Kohen Gadol who has to vacate his position? Can he just become a Kohen Hedget? Or will we reinstate him as a Kohen Gadol eventually? And the Rambam actually has situations. The Kohen Gadol got Malchus for something. He was Nikshal. Can you really reinstate him? Is it fair to the community? Are they going to look at him as a person with Kadusha, are they going to look at him as a person with whom uh, they can they can make, they can obtain an etza? So personally, I think it's a one strike you're out. Fascinating, Shilas. Fascinating, Shilas. Now, let me get to another topic, a very critical topic. Uh, sometimes when you have an abuser and you confront the individual, they'll agree to it, and that's the end of the story, and they'll leave the position. Sometimes they will deny it. They'll say that uh, all the claims are incorrect, fallacious, and they maintain their innocence. And what's interesting is that they have supporters, especially the more popular, charismatic, dynamic individuals, and they have supporters, and the supporters rally or at least continue 
saying we're going to keep this principal in the school, we're going to keep the teacher, or let's focus on the Rav in, in the shul that has allegations against him. And uh, there may be wealthy people that indeed have a strong relationship with that Rav. What would be a rationale? Do they simply not believe that their Rav is capable of the allegations? Is it uh, they don't care about the allegations? It's because they have such a strong relationship, they're, they're willing to... Um, Look, look past those those allegations. What, what what's going on in that dynamic? Okay, so I'm going to give you three thoughts on this. Firstly, what I've learned from my wife and her work um, in child safety and community safety is that it should not be the decision of the vad achinuch um, or the parent body in the school or the balabatim to decide yes or no to keeping this person in this position. You have to have professionals called in. You also, unfortunately at times, have to listen to the criminal justice system, which means that that no one's necessarily going to be doing a witch hunt to try and ruin a person. But if it's established that there are credible allegations or confirmed allegations, so this is when we have to do a comprehensive assessment of this person. And and it's not our job to decide whether or not we're going to retain him. Uh, We have to find out, is he a threat? Can he be rehabilitated? Um, And and should he be in this position? Um, So it's not a decision that Balabatin can make. It's not popular vote. It really has to be dealt with with due diligence. And, And there are people who, upon evaluation, let's say they are acquitted which means that there is no basis for the allegation. They are in the minority, meaning people who where it was completely trumped up uh, allegations. But but it's not our job to decide we think he could have done it or we don't believe he could have done it. It needs to be checked. So that's one thing. Uh, another thing is um, we are all capable of biased perception. Um, I've had situations where I've been consulted and uh, someone has gone to a great glottal um, saying, this is what we've established. This is what we've confirmed. What should we do? And the great glottal has said, fire him immediately. Fire him immediately. He has no business in Rabanus or Chinochabana, whatever the case may be. Um, and then uh, one of the Vad who's meeting with a guttle will say, and by the way, his name is so-and-so, at which point I have heard this on occasion, not always, and I'm in no way um, smearing anyone's chastashon that covered. I've had a situation where someone said, him? But he's my Talmud. He couldn't have done that. He couldn't have done it. He's my Talmud. Don't fire him. Okay, so now I'm only citing this example because we are all... We have our nagias, so to speak, and and that's why we can't be the one to make the decision. It has to be done by an objective professional. And a lot of time, what I've learned from my wife is that that professional may need to be someone outside of the Orthodox community so that no one is trying to influence that professional's judgment. We have the Gomorrah and Gittin. This is my third point uh, on them. Hey, um, that um, in, in English terms, it, it's not the mouse that does the theft. It's the mouse hole, meaning it's only possible for this mouse to do the stealing of the food because there's a way for him to do it. And, and we as a community uh, have to be very, very militant about that, that, that we can't be aiding and abetting by cover-ups the misdeeds of people. 
um, when something is wrong, it's not right. When something is wrong, it's wrong. And uh, when wrong is being done, um, we can't be doing things to cover it up. Yes, it's true. At times, um, we we have a certain cover that we need to show this person. The Gomorrah has the drasha. Meaning when you're going to do the execution, don't do it in a sadistic way. Just get it over with. There are ethics to how we're going to treat the offender. On the other hand, I, I personally spoke with Rishlomo Zalman Arbach, Zechrona and I asked him how to handle a certain situation. And he said, according to the Chuvas and Rishonim, if you have to castrate him, castrate him. That's what he said. I mean, this is Rishlomo Zalman, who was a pious, loving Ohev Israel. And we presented the situation. And he said, according to the Rishonim, if this person is a mate Sarah Sarabin and he is a predator and a repeat offender, it doesn't make a difference. He is. You go to almost any length to stop him. And by the way, on occasion in my forensic work, I've been asked to weigh in an opinion um, about whether the person should be medicinally sterilized, which means there are medications that be given with a court order, only with a court order, so that this uh, offender will no longer be a barhachi as long as he's taking the medication, which means he's not going to be neutered surgically, um, but the medication will literally prevent him from being able to get to the point where he would rape anybody or molest anybody. And and this is what I'm saying about the the, the, the mouse soul. We need to make sure we get rid of the mouse souls. We, we cannot be looking the other way. We cannot be whitewashing because we have a chmanas on the person. We need to turn to our batidin. The batidin, in my opinion, need to consult with professionals. A thorough, comprehensive evaluation must be made um, and our main concern is, is this person a danger to the public? You know, we have the Parsha of Onus and Mafata. I'm only bringing this up because I believe the word menace in English is probably cognate to the word ma'anes, a person who is guilty of being uh, perpetrating ones, which means taking advantage of people. And, and we do have in Chosha Mishpat, we do have uh, uh, guidance uh, from the Shulchan Aruch that if a person is literally a menace to society, we have to stop him. Yes. I mean, even Mesira, which is mutter in that instance. Right, right, right. And again, we can't vigilante-wise, we can't just go around uh, when there's an accusation running to the authorities we have to figure out what is the procedure to follow. Um, more and more, in my experience, our poskim, our gadoli Torah, and our bate din are, are sensitive to exactly what you just said, that if if the threat is real, if people are being destroyed physically and emotionally and spiritually by the antics or the pathology of this person, then we have to do what we can to stop him and protect public. Rabbi Fox, those three points were incredibly clear, and I really want to thank you for joining us. Uh, I have to tell you, I had a lot of questions coming in, obviously, and you have cleared them up in in a beautiful, clear fashion, and it, it gives me uh, it really gives me Yishuvadas to have heard you today. So, thank you very much. I really appreciate you being on the program. My honor.
Joining us now is Mrs. Debbie Fox. Mrs. Fox is the founder and executive director of Magen Yaladim Child Safety Institute, which is focused on preventing abuse and also protecting children. For many years, she ran a program in Los Angeles, which was in charge of abuse claims. It was citywide. What we are here to talk about is how a city can be proactive in dealing with potential claims as opposed to simply being reactive when claims come up. Mrs. Fox, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let me ask you a broad question. And you've done this, you've been there, you've done that. How should a city handle abuse claims against rabbis, against teachers, against others? Are there protocols that the institute, should they set up an advisory board for rabbis? What's the best process that can be instituted in a city to deal with these issues? Thank you. That's uh it's it's a wonderful question. It's a complicated question. It it's not a simple process. Like there would be an ABC and every every community could just do that and then it would be great. But I think there needs to be a dedication and understanding that things do happen in every community. And if they do happen, then how can we think about how we're going to handle it? I think that for instance, I'll, I'll just give you the vote. And in maybe a couple of other communities, but Chicago was a state of the art, is a state of the art program as well. But in Los Angeles, we developed a group of Rabbanim that were from around the city. And, and I think that's what you need is a group of Rabbanim that are, are working together from different areas in the community so that everybody can work together as a community. I do believe you need a mental health professional to be part of that team. Um, in addition, what you need to do is to develop a process that would work within your team um, and to develop a way of dealing with an allegation. Before you actually deal with the allegations, one of the things I'm going to say about this team is it really needs to be well-trained because Rabbanim are trained in Rabbanis and a lot of other things, but not necessarily in these issues. And so I can tell you that in Los Angeles, they were trained on sex addiction. They were trained on pedophilia. They were trained on grooming behaviors. They were trained on all the different different types of areas. They were trained on understanding the impact of sexual abuse on children. How will it ultimately affect children in their lives? And they also were trained by Department of Children's Services on what the laws were. We actually, as a committee, developed a relationship with someone in Department of Children's Services um, and developed a relationship with juvenile sex crimes so that when calls were made, there was some cultural sensitivity. So those are important relationships to develop. But at least the Rabbanim are knowledgeable about what they're dealing with. And so it gives them the opportunity to work as a community, but in a way that they have knowledge. But then um, what they need is some kind of a process. And the first piece of the process is, how do you know if you have an allegation? Um, can anybody make an allegation? Can Is every allegation true? Is So you need a process. You need the allegation to go somewhere. As the chief of juvenile sex crimes said to us, without a formal allegation, you have no case. Somebody has to give solid information. Um, our system was that it could come in several doors. There were several doors. One was straight through the mental health professional, which was me. One was there was another rub on the community, any of the rabbanim on the halachic advisory board. Someone could go. 
but that allegation had to be made in front of three Rabbanim. Now, not everybody would feel comfortable coming face to face with three Rabbanim and stating that they were sexually abused. So they had a system. You could do it on the phone in another room and they would be in another room. Today, I would say you could do it on Zoom and take off your camera, but there had to be, someone has to be able to bring an allegation that they can ask questions to make sure there's something there that they're looking into. What we did after the allegation was made was we met as a team and we decided what do we need to do about it? And all along on the side of it, we had a chart we followed on the side was something that said, is this reportable? Is this reportable? Is this reportable? At every phase we had to look at was the situation reportable? Reportable. And if it was reportable, then either I made the report, there were times that the Rabbana made the report, um, but then a report was made. But there still were systems that may, many times had to be dealt with. For instance, if we had to figure out who was this person, what did they did, what's their risk level, then we had two different people here in Los Angeles. And I sent to, I have, I make many referrals on the East Coast uh, to people who can do risk assessments. And uh, what I tell Rabunim is, you aren't trained to do a risk assessment. You need you a professional. Determine you need a what? third party. You need a professional to do that. So let, let, let me right. just make sure I get this right. It, it sounds like on a high level, you need to do this in your city, but you need to do it right. And there are three points training, I guess four points, a halachic advisory board, and it needs to be that everyone buys in citywide, you need the right people appointed, and they need to represent the city, and people should get along and uh, agree to who's going to be on the advisory board. So that would be number one. Number two, they need to be properly trained. Number three, you need a mental health professional involved. Otherwise, it's probably a bracha levatala. And number four, we are in adhering to law, and we are in contact with the authorities, especially when there is uh, reporting that is required. And once that's in instituted, we need a process as to how this halakhic advisory board and this uh, mental health professional, how they're going to manage things, how they intake of allegations, how they vet allegations, how they look at evidence, and uh, then take it from there. Exactly. Yeah. I think that is the process. And that acknowledgement that Rabunim cannot be the ones to determine innocence or guilt. If there really is an issue, they need to have a risk assessment. Um, if, if, if we don't know, unless there's clear indicators, if we don't know, we need a risk assessment to tell us what someone's risk is by someone who is trained to do that. Uh-huh. Um, and they often, we've had situations where, um, where a particular person, uh, was, we sent them for a risk assessment. The risk assessment was that it was very high. The risk of reoffending was very high. It was reported, uh, but we uh, we did send the person um, after the risk assessment. The person was sent by the Rabbanim to a treatment center for 30 days. The treatment center recommended another 30 days, and they did. It was 60 days. And after 60 days, he was told he was mandated to remain in therapy, which he did for years. So... What I will say is, and the Rabbanim stayed in touch with him, there should be a case manager on each of these cases that takes it from A to Z. 
ongoing. Now, what happens if there's an allegation and the perpetrator refuses to participate in the process? I guess their downside is that they get reported automatically if they're not participating in the process. Is that correct? If it's illegal, sometimes there are things that are gray, they're gray areas. It may be that what they're doing is not quite illegal, but we wouldn't want them to do it. So for instance, a a situation of a very wealthy man in one community who was grooming 18-year-old boys, giving them this very, very fancy car, buying the best of liquor, and then getting them drunk and massaging them and that kind of thing. That's not okay. That has to be stopped. But there wasn't anything quite illegal there. Right, right. So then so, the, the risk the risk is that you go public about it. That's the right, threat. right. And and you actually do do what has to be done. They went to him. Uh, they were very clear with him about what he couldn't do. They contacted each of the yeshivas. When boys came from out of town yeshivas, they contacted their Russia yeshiva, told them they weren't allowed to go there. There was action to keep us safe. Very good. So uh, one last question for you, Mrs. Fox. What would you say that the biggest lesson is that you can teach those listening about these situations, abuse situations? Number one, if you want to say this, you got to know, what, what would it be? We have to protect our community. We have to protect our community. And what I think people don't know is if we don't, it comes back, either through children whose lives have been destroyed and they come back or we lose them, or it comes back to the Rabbanim that they didn't deal with it and more people were harmed, it doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. So if if something happened and you think it's done, it may resurface months, years later, but if you don't deal with uh, an infection, it only gets worse. Yes. All right. Well, Mrs. Fox, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, a lot of experience you have, and we really appreciate it. Hopefully these uh, concepts will be instituted. If people can contact you, if there are cities that want to get in touch with you, how are you reachable? Um, through in your, in your spare time? Right. Through the Magenia-Ladim office is fine. There's the Magenia-Ladim Magenia office. Right. Right. Great. Mrs. Fox, thank you so much for joining us. Very much appreciated. Okay. Thank you. Joining us now is Rabbi Yona Reese. Rabbi Reese is the Av Basin of the CRC. That's the Chicago Rabbinical Council. He also serves as a Rosh Hashiva at Reitz. He goes back and forth monthly. Rabbi Reese is a graduate of Yale Law School. He was previously the director of the Basin of America, and he is also a member of the editorial board of Tradition. Rabbi Reese, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. So Rabbi Reese, as an introductory issue, if you could walk us through just quickly your involvement. There's a special basting in Chicago, I understand, about uh, abuse, and then we'll take it from there. Well, the special basting in Chicago was established probably around a quarter century ago, and it was set up to address uh, molestation issues uh, in the community so that there could be a, a proper community response. This is above and beyond that which uh, one would otherwise be obligated to do, obviously in terms of mandated reporting and the like, but just to take uh, whatever uh, additional uh, measures are, are necessary in order to keep the community safe, in order to uh, keep school children safe, uh, campers safe, uh, to make sure that uh, we weed out uh, abuse uh, in uh, the most effective fashion within the community. And uh, thank God it doesn't need to be uh, convened uh, every single day, 
Uh, but there are uh, occasions in which there are matters that have to come to the special uh, based in. Uh, there used to be a spot on the special based in for the previous abbez of the Chicago Rabbinical Council, Rabbi Gedai Yudov Schwartz, Sechat Tzadik Levacha. And uh, after he became ill, uh, I was asked to, to take his uh, seat. So I've been on that based in for the last uh, several years as well. Okay, super. So a woman or a child, woman or child has allegations against someone. Walk us through the process. What does she do? What does the child do? What do the parents of the child do? Do they come to Basin? How does this unravel? It really depends on whether we're speaking about a criminal matter. If we're speaking about a criminal matter, the Batidzin nowadays generally don't have a criminal jurisdiction to um, impose appropriate punishments of incarceration and the like. If it is a criminal matter, and particularly if somebody is engaged in uh, rape or uh, sodomy, or some other uh, type of uh, crime in which uh, they are violating other individuals. Ravel Yashiv uh, has a tshuva on this that he wrote to Rafael Kohn, that if you know that this type of abuse is occurring, then based on Tikkun Olam uh, considerations, uh, it is appropriate to, to in, hand over such individual to the criminal authorities who can deal with it uh, appropriately. Uh, there are stories in the Gemara about how Rabbi Elosib or Rabbi Shimon and others served as a district attorney uh, type of figure in order to apprehend criminals and turn them over to the government and was speaking about uh, Jewish criminals. Uh, so when uh, there is a Hermann and Demarca, certainly a uh, a requirement, a mandated reporter sort of requirement and the like, so then for sure it has to be done. But Yashiv's Chiddush was that he said, even if there isn't a Herman of Damalka, based on a Tikkun Olam considerations of keeping the community safe, it's appropriate to hand over such perpetrators. Okay, so if the law is being violated, head off to the authorities. We need to, They need to deal with it because the base team doesn't have uh, the ability to incarcerate and prevent further abuse. So that, that would be that stuff. Now, if somebody comes and uh, there's a claim, has a claim against a a, a Rav or somebody else, but uh, we can speak about a rabbi. And and the question is, uh, let's say this person doesn't want to, want to go to the authorities, or the authorities is a long process. And the question is, how do we ensure that this doesn't happen if it's a person who has ongoing contacts? It could be a teacher, it could be a principal of a school, or it can be a rub of a shul, ongoing contacts with either children or women. What would be considered enough, quote unquote, proof from a base in order for them to start warning people that there is a a, a problem here, a potential problem here? There's, there's a certain standard uh, that I have a, a Mesorah. Uh, from those who preceded me on the special based in, in Chicago from Rav Avam Chaim Levin uh, Zatzal, who of course was uh, the Rosh Yeshiva of Tells here in Chicago. Uh, and that's the standard, the standard of Nikarim Devreyemis. Uh, that if it's uh, very clear, sometimes you don't have the opportunity to bring Shneidim Kesherim when it comes uh, to a testimony about this sort of thing. In fact, uh, probably never do you have that opportunity because these are the types of things that are often done behind closed doors and the like. But if it's Nikarim Divrayemis, if it's very clear uh, from the unambiguous uh, circumstantial evidence uh, that there's abundant evidence uh, and one can tell based on the circumstances, the interviewing with the parties, even with the suspected, alleged uh, perpetrator as well, that these things uh, did in fact occur, uh, then uh, proper measures have to be taken if it's a person in a position of rabbinic authority 
They have to be removed from that authority because, number one, uh, they uh, serve as a danger to uh, the community uh, in terms of their influence and what type of abuse they can perpetrate uh, from that position of power. And number two, it's a giant Chilul Hashem. Uh, for somebody who's uh, involved in, in such uh, actions uh, to be serving as a representation of Torah. Uh, we learn that, that uh, the, 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 the Pasuk uh, says, uh, das yishmu, uh, das that uh, a teacher of uh, children, a Rebbe, a Rav has to be Dome Lamalach Hashem Sivakos. If he's Dome Lamalach Hashem Sivakos, the Gepasag in Malachi, uh, the Gemara in Chagiga tells us, so then you've actually Torah Mipiu. If he's not Dome Lamalach Hashem Sivakos, so then you shouldn't learn Torah from such an individual. So if somebody is guilty of inappropriate behavior, even if it doesn't rise to the level of criminal sanctions and punishment by the authorities, such a person should not be serving in a position of rabbinic authority. Would that go to the extent of the rav or the, the, the accused, the person who's accused, claims it was consensual? That's still not somebody who should be teaching Torah. Even if it was consensual, this is not the behavior of Ramallah Hashem Sivakot. I think that goes without saying. Right, right. So Nikarim Advarim, that standard of Nikarim Advarim, we don't need Shnei Eidim, Sherim, but Nikarim Advarim, I, I would assume then, and I don't, I don't want to put words into your mouth, the more claims against him or the more detailed the claims are, or if there are recordings, or if you have 10, 20 women or five children making claims, that rises to the level of very Nikarim Advarim. Would that to be sufficient to uh, making the attempt to remove the individual? Sometimes you have what the Gemara refers to as kaladolo pasuk, uh, that uh, there are rumors and accusations and allegations that never seem to stop. Uh, a person might have an enemy uh, who uh, would uh, capitalize upon uh, a slight misjudgment, uh, which it doesn't really rise to the level of uh, serious inappropriateness. Somebody makes a passing comment that maybe they should have uh, thought better about saying, um, uh, where it's a one-time occasion and then 50 years pass and you never hear anything else is said. That might be a different story. You have to be cautious about those types of things. You don't want to ruin people's lives unnecessarily. But if there's allegation after allegation over and over again, uh, then uh, the Gemara indicates, uh, indicates as a general rule, when there's smoke, there's fire, you get more into the domain of Nikaram Divrayemis. And also, uh, there's uh, a notion uh, that uh, you, when you speak to the person himself, uh, who may be the accused, the perpetrator, uh, one thing that we've discovered here in Chicago with the, the special bet in is that when there are very strong accusations, at least in terms of our own experience, when there is very compelling uh, evidence and the like, they usually do admit it. Uh, now, we just have a halakhic principle of a person can't invalidate themselves, for example, to be a witness and the like, but many posts can say, if it's accompanied by circumstantial evidence, it's a different story. And in any event, when it comes to removing a person from a position of, of authority, of responsibility towards children, towards the congregation, uh, these things can certainly be taken uh, much more seriously. That's what many of the postgame have said, including Rizal and Nechemia Goldberg, uh, that uh, this is a, a different standard. 
Even the Gemara Anita speaks about when there are strong allegations and the like, even if you don't take action against an individual until you've researched the, the allegations further, if they're serious allegations, we have a principle of mechlash miyabai, that you have to be worried about the possibility that maybe they're true. And if there are uh, charges, uh, children and campers and congregants and the like who may be impacted, it's appropriate to take uh, measures uh, to put into place in order to protect those people even as uh, the invest even as uh, the investigation is uh, ongoing with respect to the charges I'm, I'm just curious when you uh summons the person who's accused to the base team do you give him a heads up as to what the discussion is going to be about or do you just call him in and the dianim are sitting there and you say you know we've heard allegations about you does he know what, what what's going to be happening in that meeting as appropriate, the person is called in and said that there are allegations that were made and we need to speak to you. Okay, so allegations and, and it doesn't go as far, any further than that until he comes in and then and then you go through the detail. Probably don't have to give too much detail. The pr- person is aware of what happened. Usually not in, in our experience. Now, are these things handled publicly, privately, because if you have somebody who's accused, especially if he's denying it or fighting the fight, if you don't go public, there are concerns about recurring issues. So how how would you handle such a thing? Sometimes you have to go public in order to uh, protect people in the future. And sometimes you have to go public uh, for uh, the purpose of uh, providing a comfort level for those who were abused and for those who were violated to be able to express themselves, to be able to feel like they've been validated, like their words are going to be heard, that people will take them seriously, that they won't be dismissed or ostracized because of the things that they're saying. It's very important sometimes to just be able to empower them, uh, to enable them to go through the healing process, which is necessary. Uh, sometimes it's necessary to go public because that's the law. So there are different uh, circumstances in every single case and uh, different considerations as to how one is supposed to react and how one is supposed to investigate and how one is supposed to uh, implement uh, the um, decision uh, that uh, is uh, made by uh, by the best thing. Right now, what if we have a rav principle, rav principle, whatever, whatever the situation, and he's insisting he's innocent despite a number of claims against him, despite evidence, recordings, and the like, and he's insisting on keeping his shul, keeping his position, and we do have to go through a process. Would we focus on the people who are going to the shul, saying, you just can't do that anymore? How would we deal with an abuser um, in that nature, in that situation? You have to think about protecting the community. You have to think about those who are at risk. Uh, the Shoal Umeshev of, of uh, Yosef Shoal Nathanson was asked the question in the 1850s about a teacher who was accused by a couple of his former male students of having sodomized them when they were ketanim, when they were below the age of a bar mitzvah. Now they were teenagers and they made the claim. So there had been some investigation originally when the charges arose when they were still ketanim. 
And uh, the feeling was, okay, there wasn't a full-fledged edus, uh, the person that didn't uh, fully admit it, so they discharged it from his job, but they allowed him to go to a different community. Now he got a job in a different community. And uh, then the question that was posed to Rabbi Nathanson was, is it uh, appropriate for him to keep that job in the separate community, given what these children, uh, now teenagers, were saying about what he did to them? Uh, And Rabbi Nathanson said uh, that uh, you can't allow... Uh, such a person to uh, be in a position of being a mechanic of children, uh, given the, the uh, tremendous uh, responsibility that that entails uh, in being a Torah figure and uh, authority. And he said, even though we don't have Edim Kesher uh, in this particular case, we don't have an admission uh, per se on the part of uh, this person that he committed uh, these acts. He quoted the Ramah in Choshen Mishpat in Simen Laman Hay, based in the Ma'arik, the Trumas Adeshen, uh, that if you have an incident that occurs where you can't realistically expect Edim Kesherim, where you're only going to have Ketanim, Noshim, uh, what have you, um, who are going to be present. Uh, the famous uh, case of a fight breaking out in the Ezra's Noshim, for example. So then uh, you have to uh, rely on individuals who otherwise would not be Aiden Shavim. In this case, uh, the children were testifying about what happened when they were Kitanim. But he says uh, that he's not taking this so far as uh, to be posel, the person begufo, as to say that uh, this individual who's denying uh, any of these claims is now going to be declared puzzle the Uh if he signed on a, a get or if he was an aid kiddushin or something like that. Uh, but he's saying, but in terms of protecting the community, you have to take uh, these uh, charges and claims seriously enough under the circumstances uh, that uh, he should not be serving in this type of a position. Now, so we, we have the risk of if we just go quiet and send the person out of town and without going public about about these issues, not dealing with them on a psychological basis, on a therapeutic basis, he'll wind up, and this has happened many times, that they'll go elsewhere and continue the the, the deeds, the nefarious acts, the abuse, and, and the like. So that that would go in favor of if you if you find out the person is elsewhere, you should go public. You should make statements, or maybe when it's happening, if the person is not uh, penitent and uh, is in maintaining innocence, to publicize. We have abusers, unfortunately, here in Israel that have been uh, recycled from chutzlarts, and indeed some of them do continue on in their ways. Yes, it's uh, important to recognize that if a person is a danger to one community, he's going to be a danger to a different community as well. And uh, we owe a responsibility towards all of Klau Yisrael. Uh, this is uh, the notion, uh, to some extent, of what's discussed in Kloshe Mishpat, in Simon Shin Ches, based on the Ramam, of uh, a person being Meitzer as Harabim. If you have uh, an individual who poses a, a threat to, to the entire community, normally there's a prohibition of Mesira, of handling a person over to uh, the uh, governmental criminal uh, authorities because maybe they'll punish the person in an extreme way. Uh, so even when the prohibition of Mesira would otherwise apply, and that's a whole separate discussion, um, uh, the halacha is that if the person is Meitzer or Sarabim, is causing a tremendous risk to the entire community. You hand them over. And what that means is you take the steps that are necessary in order to protect the totality of the community. Right, right. So, Rabbi Reese, have you seen situations when there's been abuse, serious allegations of abuse, and there are people who simply don't believe it? 
for whatever reason, I don't know if they're no Ged or they like their Rav so much and they deny it and they want to, they maintain his innocence and they want to maintain his position. What, what would you say in a situation like that? How do you handle it? Look, you, you, you don't want to believe these allegations, particularly if uh, they uh, are regarding an individual whom you respect uh, very much. You want to be done the kapitzuchus. Those are all uh, virtuous uh, attributes. But the truth is that even as uh, an investigation is being conducted and a person needs to be sidelined um, in order to uh, protect uh, potential future victims, even when nothing has been conclusively determined yet, um, one can keep an open mind that maybe things are not quite as bad as they have been charged and so forth. But when one is faced with incontrovertible evidence, uh, then it's important to to recognize that uh, sometimes individuals suffer from whatever type of sickness they may uh, suffer from, and uh, that uh, requires a reassessment of what your expectations might otherwise have been. Uh, with respect to that person. But you can't put your head in the sand. And uh, if sometimes if you're too much of a rachaman ala chazari, you have too much compassion for those who are abusing others, you end up being a me'achzeris ala rachmanim. You end up uh, being uh, cruel uh, to uh, those who are innocent. Oh, that's an interesting statement. You may have been having rachamim on the abuser, but how about all the those who are abused? Yes, and this is a Maim of Chazal. As always, uh, Chazal knew exactly uh, what they were talking about, and we have to always be guided by their words. No comments on animal rights. We're not going to get into that based on that Chazal. No. No, okay. Not this time. That might be a different segment you might want to do in the future. (laughs) Absolutely. Rabbi Reese, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's uh, it's nice to speak with you after so long, and uh, we look forward to having you on again. It's always a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you very much.